Welcome back to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Pagani, joined alongside senior writer covering the Minnesota for the Athletic, Michael Russo. Michael, thank you again for coming on the podcast. No, no problem. You know, during this pandemic, a lot of people have turned on Netflix. How are you able to uh, keep yourself busy? Um, it's actually been a lot of work. I feel like uh, it's been almost more work than than if you were going to cover a hockey season and traveling to, you know, 41 road games and 41 home games. It, it seems like every story takes a lot longer to write just because you, you're not covering hockey. You're almost inventing every single story. So I'm super excited that uh, that the Stanley Cup playoffs started yesterday and that the Wild, uh, the team that I cover, uh, actually drops the puck officially tonight and I can actually write about stuff that's been going on. But uh, other than that, it's been, uh, you know, like everybody else, been pretty much staying at home and, uh, you know, watching a lot of TV and just trying to get by in this very strange uh, time that we're all living through. Has your whole perception on the coronavirus changed since March when every league yeah. shut down? Yeah. I remember the last podcast that I did uh, right before the shutdown, somebody brought up to me if the NHL would potentially play without fans, and I said never. Uh, I'd never even imagined that you would actually uh, shut down an entire sports league. But then I was doing a Wednesday night podcast, a, set, a different podcast that I do. And during that podcast, the NBA announced that they were uh, suspending the season. And right, right when that happened, I remember I was driving home and a couple of wild players actually called me. They were playing Vegas the next night. And a couple of wild players uh, called me to, to say what I was hearing. And I just said, well, look, you know, NHL teams uh, play in the same buildings as these NBA teams. Uh, the Utah Jazz were just in places like Detroit and I think Jersey and Carolina was just in there. Like he just knew that the league was going to have to follow suit. Um, but this is just absolutely crazy. I never, ever envisioned that uh, 24 teams would be playing in two bubble cities. Well, you actually do run three podcasts. So what are the aim of those podcasts? Um, one is called the Russo Suhan Show. That's on the Talk North Network. And that is actually um, uh, where essentially Jim Suhan, who's a columnist at the Star Tribune, sort of interviews me about hockey each week. The other one is the Athletic podcast uh, called Straight from the Source. That's on the Athletic app and also Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. That's where I interview guests each week. And then the other one is called The Athletic Hour. That's actually on the radio station that I have an affiliation with here that I contribute to here in Minnesota called uh, KFAN. It's one of the biggest sports radio stations in the Midwest. And uh, we do uh, essentially an hour, hour a week uh, podcast on there that's also on their second radio station that, this, that the station has uh, for overflow games and things like that. And then and then I contribute on uh, Fox Sports North. And I do uh, – and KFAN is kind of my uh, – you know, biggest passion. I love doing radio. Uh, I contribute there, you know, several times a week. So how busy is your life, would you say? Um, I mean, it's busy, but it's, uh, you know, it beats, uh, beats really working for a living. You know, I mean, uh, being a sports writer is uh, the most fun that you could possibly have. I would say that, you know, our jobs take on such a huge, huge portion of our lives that if you're going to do something, you better enjoy it. You better love it. And I absolutely love this job. I've done it for since I was a teenager, since I was even before your age, I started uh, 15 years old uh, um, and a couple newspapers in South Florida and grew up in the business and, um, and it's, and it's a great life. So, I mean, it's busy work. Um, it's a lot harder now just because it, you know, everything's done by zooms and the way that I feel like you have to do this job well is to have really good, uh, relationships with players, face-to-face -face contact with uh, GMs, coaches, um, sources, and to do everything by Zooms and really, un you know, not very organic is makes this job a lot harder. Um, but, but 
you know, hey, it, you know, it's, it's the life that we lead now. How do you make sure you don't run out of topics to talk about on those three podcasts? Yeah, it's a good point. I think that sometimes I find myself repeating a lot of things that I do say. And I, I think that that is the danger of having so many podcasts. You know, you also have the danger, as you know, of becoming overexposed. I mean, you know, I mean, we see it. I mean, how many times do you, as a, as a hockey fan, watch a broadcaster on TV and you're like, oh, I hate him, you know, like, uh, because, and it's really just because you, you hear him, you're, you're tired of him. And, and, you know, so there's a danger of, of uh, sometimes saying the same thing on too many places or having your voice or your face on too many things. And you, and you, you know, that, that does become an issue. So, um, you know, it is, I think it takes a lot of prep work to try to uh, not repeat the same thing every single show, but sometimes I don't do the greatest, uh, the greatest uh, job of that. With hockey starting yesterday, was there a specific game that caught your eye? Um, I just was shocked at the first Carolina Rangers game. I'll say that uh, at just the way the Carolina went right after the Rangers and really just showed that if you put your, if you dip your toe into this playoffs, you're probably going to be out very, very quickly. Um, It's the playoffs immediately right now. And so that was the big thing that I noticed, but um, I loved uh, all the games. I thought the Pittsburgh Montreal game was fascinating to watch. Obviously, you know, the the only overtime game yesterday as well. Um, And then watching two 12 seeds in Montreal and and, uh, Chicago win, I think, I don't know if that's the league's worst nightmare or what they wanted all along by putting these two big markets in there. Um, But that is the danger now is suddenly, you know, you have Pittsburgh and Edmonton on the, on the ropes uh, very quickly in a best of five series. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that caught my eye was the amount of penalties that were taking in the New York and Carolina game, plus the Montreal game. So I believe that, you know, with this day two uh, today, uh, the refs could relax their whistles. Yeah, that's the hope. I think that they're trying to set the standard right off the hop, but and almost forgetting that it's the playoffs, right? And usually the whistles are a little uh, less uh, plentiful. Um, maybe these uh, referees were just bored after being away from the game like the rest of the players for five months and wanted to just let everybody know they still exist. I don't know. I did a really big story on the on uh, what the officiating could be like and referees in the bubble the other day in The Athletic that I highly recommend people reading. But it was – I agree with you. I think it got a little too much yesterday. And, I, uh, you know, I'm one of those people that would love to see uh, five-on-five um, uh, play a little more in these playoffs. Because I believe that the game should be decided five on five rather than on special teams. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, look, it's part of the game. If they're egregious penalties, I think you call it. But I think we're used to seeing, uh, you know, a little more let go in the playoffs. And my guess is just like how early in the season, in a regular season, you always see a ton of penalties. Uh, called as the, almost like the referees just let the players know this is what we expect. I think that as this playoff round continues, as we get into the actual, you know, best of 16 playoffs, I think that we'll see less and less uh, the referees becoming a factor. At least I hope so. What would you say is your outlook for the series against the Canucks? Um, I like the way that the Wild uh, match up against them. I think it's going to be very important that Minnesota um, stays on the attack, forechecks uh, the heck out of the puck, and, and spends a lot of time in the offensive zone to keep Pedersen and Besser and JT Miller and Bo Horvat away from their defensive zone. And um, the Wild, uh, you know, five on five offensively, were actually one of the top teams in the league. Their power play was absolutely on fire down the stretch, especially after the coaching change where Dean Evason took over. And and so there, this should be a really well-played uh, series. I don't think the Wild want to trade chances with the likes of Horvat and, and Miller and Besser and Pedersen, but 
Um, you know, but the Wild have shown that they can score goals, uh, you know, with the best of them, even though that uh, I think a lot of fans, if you ask them deep down, they would never put the Wild in that category of being one of the top offensive teams in the league. Would you agree the Wild were trending in the right direction after the coaching change? Um, yeah, I think that they were actually starting to trend in the right direction a little before the coaching change. Um, but you're right. But look, they were eight and four under Dean Evison, won eight of their last 11 games. And, um, and definitely, uh, that last, uh, couple of weeks, uh, they were playing really, really well, had a great win in Edmonton, a great win in Vancouver, a great win in Anaheim, a great win in, in San Jose, and just started to play more and more, uh, you know, on the attack with, uh, some, a little more freedom offensively, I would say. Um, and, and look, Bruce Boudreaux, I think, was trying to, to, to tighten things up just because their goaltending was so bad this year that I think that he felt like he, you know, they had to start winning 2-1, 3-2 hockey games where Dean, when he took over, it was almost like, they, hey, we have nothing else to lose. Um, Alex Daylock sort of became the everyday number one for this team um, over Dubnik, who wasn't playing well. And, um, and uh, you know, they, they definitely fared well down the stretch there before the pause. Do you think that the emergence of Kapo Kakinen, the third-string Minnesota Wild goalie, could push Devin Dubnik out of the picture? You know, that, that's a definite p- potential. I mean, uh, he's got one year left on his contract. His cap hit is over four, but the buyout is very, very uh, reasonable. And so there's a chance that happens. And, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, you know, as, we, as we're recording this right now, I can't tell you 100% who's starting in goal tonight uh, in game one against the Canucks, whether it's Stalock, Dubnik, or Kakinen. Um, you know, part of coming into camp where I thought Kakinen fared really well is I wondered if Billy Guerin would essentially say to Dean Evison, hey, you know, play Kakinen, let's see what we got in this guy so we can make a decision in the offseason regarding the goaltending. But so far, um, that certainly doesn't be, seem to be the case. But I definitely think that they've got to, at some point here, figure it out if Kakinen, who was the goalie of the year in the AHL, is definitely uh, the, you know, quote-unquote goalie of the future. And if that's the case, that's definitely going to spell the end of uh, Devin Dubnik at some point. If the Wild do drop down this, uh, you know, down one nothing this series against Vancouver, how important is it to reassess the goalie situation? Um, I think that it's, uh, you know, that's the interesting thing, I think, with all these teams in this short playoff series. Uh, you know, you're seeing it with Vegas, with Fleury and um, – and, um, Leonard. And Leonard. And, and uh, you know, same thing here is that in a, you, there's no room for error. So in a normal series where if you drop down – you know, you fall down 2-0, like when the Wild in 2014 were playing against Colorado and Brisbalov started and they fell down 2-0. You knew Kemper was coming in game three. Here, it might be that way after game one. And, you know, part of me is why, you know, I'm not 100% who's going to be in goal tonight because part of me says, all right, go with the guy that was playing great down the stretch that the team seems to play better in front of in Alex Dela. But the other part of me is, let's see if Dubnik can play well. He's been in this position before. He usually starts seasons on time. And, uh, and then, you know, see if you can get a win. And then if all of a sudden the wheels come off Dubnik, then at least you have that, you know, energy guy coming in from the bullpen that the team seems to rally around and stay locked. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how Dean Evison and all these coaches handle um, being down 1-0 in a series if you're not getting the goaltending. Like right, right, right now, you know the chance of Mike Smith starting for Edmonton game two is very, very slim, right? That's correct. You know, he did actually, you know, it was part defense, but he also did give up a goal right to Dylan Strom, I believe. It was the second goal or something like that for Chicago. And it was just a poor puck play by him. Yes. And I had Dylan Strom on my fantasy team and I didn't put him in the lineup. And so I almost threw the 
clicker against the wall at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, the uh, no, I agree. I mean, that's the thing with Mike is that you know sometimes he can be really, really erratic. We saw that the last couple of years in Arizona and, and Calgary, and um, and you know he certainly didn't seem to be uh, you know off uh, to a great start in the series. Is it crazy to you at all to realize that one of these qualifying round teams that are playing could or will get Lafreniere? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and, and I think that any, any hockey fan that's cynical, like uh, most sports writers are, would assume that uh, whoever loses between Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Edmonton, one of those three teams is probably getting Lafreniere. I know, the ha- I know that you're hoping that if it's Montreal, who's getting them. Um, well, but, but I could tell you that here in Minnesota – I put out a poll the night of the uh, the draft lottery saying, who would you rather in goal, Stalock and Dubnik or Michael Russo? And, and uh, about 70% of the people said me. So Wild fans are starved for that game breaker, that blue chip prospect at the top of the draft, and uh, something they haven't had since the days of Marion Gabber. Well, I can tell you that as a Habs or, you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of Chicago Blackhawk fans can agree with me here, uh, those two teams don't have any business being in this year's playoffs. So it's kind of like a crapshoot uh, whether you want to cheer for the wins or do you want to cheer for getting a one-in-eight shot at getting Lafreniere? Well, it's going to be really interesting. Like, if you fall down 2-0 in a series, if all of a sudden the coach starts making really mysterious, bizarre lineup decisions, you know the GMs said to him, you know, let's just take our chances on the 12.5% to get Lafreniere. Getting into your story bit here, who influenced you to start sports journalism? Um... That's a great question. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I loved being a sports journalist. I, I grew up uh, my first 12 years in New York. I had a paper route. I used to read all the newspapers um, while I was doing my route. But I was really into pretending like I was a play-by-play guy. I'd sit in front of the parents' bed or the couch with a flashlight and, and pretend it was a microphone and, and call games. And then I moved to Florida. And um, really, we had no hockey down there. We had a minor, minor, minor league hockey team uh, called the West Palm Beach Blaze. Uh, in the Sun Ho- Sunshine Hockey League, Bill Nyrup, who played for the Canadians, ran the league, ran the team, um, was the GM, the owner, and the, the uh, coach of the West Palm Beach franchise, but was the actual commissioner of the league, and um, really learned a lot about the game. But I was already in the newspaper at that point. And, you know, I just, uh, when, I, when I was in high school, I used to, I knew right away that I was no athlete. And so I used to uh, do the public address announcing at, at all the games, whether it was, uh, it was football or basketball or baseball. And I befriended all the sports writers because the hardest thing when you cover sports, right, uh, high schools as a sports writer is you got to keep your own stats. You got to walk the sidelines, even if it's a snowstorm or, or a, uh, in Florida, a rainstorm. And so the sports writers loved me because not only would I call the games, but I'd keep the stats and then I would give it to them after the game. And I just befriended them. And next thing I know, I got my foot in the door at both uh, the Boca Raton News and the Sun Sentinel. And just grew up in the business and really never left. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy how long I've done this now. It's, uh, we're talking well over th- – we're talking 30-something years, 25 as a NHL writer. Um, and I've only really had three jobs. I worked for the Sun Sentinel, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and now the Athletic here for the last uh, – in about exactly a month, uh, almost three years here. From 1990 to 2005 is when you uh, did report for the Sun Sentinel with the Florida Panthers. You know, fans joke about the Panthers' attendance all the time, but you, do you think it's a serious issue that owners should consider? 
Well, I mean, you got to understand the context of, of that, those games down there is that the, that team, when they first got down there, they sold out every single game at Miami Arena. Uh, there was, I think, an attendance uh, max of 14,723. Then they moved into National Car Rental Center, which is uh, the current arena they play in, in which I think is, uh, what's it, BB&T now, maybe? Yeah. And... Um, and they, it's a 19, it's probably too big. It's 19,000 uh, seats. It's sort of in the middle of nowhere along the Everglades. Um, and, but when they first moved in there, they sold out every game. They had Pavel Bure. He scored 58 and 59 goals there in, in uh, the, his first two years with the team, his first two full seasons with the team. And people loved him. Um, you know, in 1990, in the, sorry, in the year 2000, they had 98 points, and that was pre-loser pre point, points. You know, they, they looked like they were – going to have a real legitimate chance of winning the cup and um, ever since they haven't won a playoff round since 1996 they've gone years and years and years in a row without doing anything in the playoffs and you know when that happens and you're in South Florida where there's so much to do you quickly become irrelevant and that's what's gone on with the fans there this is really nothing to do with the fan base down there there's a ton of hockey fans down there but if you're going to spend your hard-earned cash you want to go see a winner and the Panthers, uh, they've been a very unstable team, changing ownerships, changing managers, changing coaches for years. They haven't had any postseason success. And that's why the crowds have been so low. But I promise you, if they could get their crap together um, and become a perennial winner there, the fans down there who love winners will embrace it and come to that, come to that arena and watch them. I mean, just look across the, across the state. Tampa Bay Lightning is one of the most successful franchises in sports. Why? Same Floridian fan base, you know, same fans that have come from the Northeast to, to retire down there, but they give them a reason to show up. They have a winner every single year. Do you think, so would you agree that most uh, Florida fans would just travel all the way to Tampa Bay to see a winner? Because obviously they are starving for wins. Yeah, no, I don't think that like South Florida fans would would travel there, especially because it's hard to get into that arena. I mean, you've got to be a Lightning fan. They they barely let you wear the the uh, the gear of another team uh, down there. But but um, you know what I'm saying more is that is that hockey could be a hundred percent successful in South Florida if the organization would get their act together and give people a reason to show up. You co-authored a book in 2000 called Rising Stars, the 10 Best Young Players in the NHL. Yeah. Uh, was the aim of that book to kind of grow the game for younger kids? Well, it was a Sports Illustrated for Kids book. I re still remember I was at a hotel in Atlanta in the middle of the summer, and, they, uh, and um, the editor or one of the editors at the SI for Kids uh, book used to be the PR guy for the Florida Panthers. He called me. His name was John Kramer, and he pitched this idea of co-writing this book with uh, Mike Brem and gave us the 10 guys that would be in it. And I just thought it would be a fun idea. Um, you know, I, I joke that they told me that it needed to be a third or a fifth grade level uh, writing. And that's basically the level that I write at anyway. So I'm like, oh yeah, it'd be perfect. Um, you know, it's funny. I've had a gazillion opportunities to write books. I, I didn't exactly love the process. Um, you know, I'm just not, I'm not, you know, I'd almost, you know, in the off season, I, I want to enjoy my off season and not just sit at a laptop every day. And I, I'm amazed. I'm actually inspired by the authors, the writers, the wordsmiths that could actually sit down and just churn out book after book after book. It's not my thing. Would you, so you wouldn't consider writing a future book? I mean, I would consider it, but probably not. I mean, the, the pro, I think it would be incredibly satisfactory, like the second it's over to say, all right, here's my book. Um, but I, the act of doing it, 
is is uh, to me the labor intensive. It's just not my thing. I'd I'd rather go for a walk or listen to music or hang out with buddies uh, rather than you know, especially now because our off season is going to be extremely limited and uncertain and unclear when it is. I just don't know if uh, it's something that I'm going to want to ever do. In 2010, I'll tell you one thing. Oh, if I ever did it, it would probably not be about hockey. It would need to be about some other passion that I have, whether it's music or something like that. You know. In 2010, the NHL uh, selected you as a journalist to go cover the 2010 Olympics. Uh, did you cover hockey, or what sports did you cover? Well, the Star Tribune uh, uh, sent me to the Olympics in 2010 in Vancouver, um, and uh, I covered uh, yeah, I covered the entire hockey tournament. But the you know the way it works in the Olympics is that the first week, uh, especially if the NHL is involved, is that the players are still back playing in the NHL. But I was already in Vancouver. So I covered uh, I covered um, luge up there. I covered um, uh, some Lindsey Vaughn skiing up there. I covered uh, one of you know those hot dog ski events uh, as well. So it was pretty it was pretty uh, fun. It was it was awesome to go up to to uh, Whistler and, and cover those. But I mean I absolutely loved the the hockey tournament and being able to cover every single game there. Um, and then to be in the building at GM place when uh, you know when. Uh, the United States forced overtime on a Parisi goal, coincidentally, and then Sidney Crosby won it in overtime. It was just awesome to be right there in the middle of it. Could you tell me your story about the Crosby Golden Goal? Um, you know, I was just sitting there, and it was like one of those things. Right when it ha- right when the play developed, you just knew the game was ending. Right, um, and uh, you know, from my perspective, again, this is before. Zach Parise played for Minnesota, but as the Minnesota journalist in there, you know, to me, the story was how he forced overtime. And uh, so I wrote mostly from that perspective on the disappointment of the United States coming so, so close and really having an incredible tournament, um, you know, beating Canada in the, in the early rounds and then, uh, and then coming back and then playing this great, great game. And um, there were so many great Minnesota players on that United States team as well. So I pretty much went with that perspective. And then from, uh, from a wild perspective, I mean, the wild had a ton of guys in that tournament. I mean, guys like Gabrick um, and uh, you know, uh, the, I mean, they had three fins in uh, Koivu, Nicholas Backstrom and Antti Mietnin, um, you know, uh, some Swedes as well. So it was, it was a heck of a uh, ability to, to, and a real pride of mine that I got to cover that. I got to say that, you know, the U.S. had all the momentum going into the overtime frame. Yes, no doubt about it. And uh, I still remember the goal that Zach scored. I think Rafalski maybe set it up. Um, but it was, just, uh, it was just an awesome, awesome experience. And, you know, that's one of the things that I'll cherish in my career is not only just covering the hockey, but getting to be around the Olympics and going to the opening and closing games. I've never had that experience before. Going up to Whistler, I wound up in the middle of sort of an international event. Uh, there was a loser for the United States uh, that, was a, that was an absolute um, star that was wrapping up his career. His name's Tony Benshoff. He's right here from White Bear Lake. So I was up there sort of doing features on him and shadowing him when that uh, poor uh, uh, luge athlete from uh, the Republic of Georgia passed away on the track. So I had to cover that um, from a sort of an international standpoint. And, uh, you know, it just shows you how, you know, you think you're going up there to just do a normal everyday feature on luge. And next thing you know, you're in the middle of this international incident that was so much bigger than the sport itself. How critical is it to have connections within the hockey world in order to cover a team at the NHL level? Um, it's, it's huge. I mean, the whole point of this job is great is relationship building, um, proper interview techniques and, um, and, and multiple and ample sources. And, 
you know, a lot of it's longevity. I've covered this league a long time. So I have a lot of people that I know and know well. Um, and so, um, and, and I think that the other thing is like, especially in, in, in hockey, you know, the people that are involved in the game, they have such an immense respect and love for the sport that if they recognize right away that the beat writer doesn't have that work ethic or that passion or that love for the sport itself, they're just not going to respect you. Um, where I think with most people that know me personally or read my stuff or have everyday dealings with me, they know that my entire life is hockey. Um, and it's, and it's uh, writing about the sport to the readers that are diehard fans. And so, um, you know, that's part of this job is just, uh, it's working hard. It, to me, it's so much better than being a good, it's so much more than being a good writer. It's, it's being a good reporter, but it's, it's um, having these incredible relationships that you could uh, sort of forge with these uh, subjects that you're writing about to then be able to have them trust in the fact that you're going to be able to tell their story uh, beyond just what's going on on the ice. You know, these are human beings, they're people. Um, and that's what I enjoy about working for The Athletic is that I get to tell these stories and uh, give people that are fans of the team that I'm covering um, a lot more um, belief and feeling that they know the athletes that they're fans of. Do you get a feeling that uh, hockey players are put on some sort of pedestal and act as the superheroes? I mean, uh, you know, it depends. Uh, I think that, uh, that all athletes, uh, if you're a fan of them, um, you know, you have an immense amount of respect for them just right off the hop, right? I mean, if, if, if they're putting on your – I mean, just think of any time like a, a somebody that was a rival of your team suddenly slips on the jersey for the first time, how much you immediately switch allegiances and become a fan of them. It's, it's, it's all to do with the, the team that you're, you're a fan of. And, 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 um, and because of that, these players are given this platform where, you know, they're just automatically respected and liked. What factors play into successful reporting? Um, I think it's listening. I think it's, uh, um, you know, too many journalists uh, sit there and they write down, you know, um, every question. They don't listen to the, to, the, to the, you know, conversation that you're having when you're sitting down at a locker. I don't know if we'll ever get to do that again. But sitting down with a locker with a player and chatting with them. Um, it's, it's creating this relationship where they feel they, they could trust you and not ever burning them. I think that's a lot harder in today's day and age because I think because of all the outlets that all of us writers have between doing podcasts and radio and TV and Twitter and all this stuff, you almost have multiple ways that you could uh, potentially, for lack of a better term, burn a player where they feel like that you said something that was inappropriate. I almost like if I ever have a disagreement with a player, it's usually because of something that came out of my mouth rather than something I used to write. Where years and years and years ago, when a player was ticked with you, it was because of something you wrote in the newspaper. Um, but I think, uh, you know, to me, being a good reporter and doing this job well is, again, relationships and work ethic. And if you have that, and a love for the sport. And if you have those three things, you're going to be successful at this job. What about your style of writing? Do you like that it gets the fans' attention? You know, I think it's more conversational. It's anecdotal. Um, you know, I always joke that my best writing are quotes. <laughs> I, I almost feel like that, you as Michael, the hockey fan, would rather see hear what the player is saying today rather than what Michael Russo is writing today, you know. And um, so, you know, that's kind of uh, it is, for lack of a better term, I, I, I probably have too many quotes in my stories. I would rather hear from what, you know, Zach Parisi or Ryan Suter saying than what, what Russo is writing. So, um, 
but I, you know, I would say that I'm not the greatest wordsmith, but, but, um, but then there are some stories that I write that I'm really proud of. And, and they're usually anecdotals. I usually try to paint a scene at the beginning um, that I could carry through the whole article. Do you buy into the whole clickbait idea? Um, I don't like clickbaiting. Um, I definitely don't like headlines to try to um, be manufactured or, or styled you know, put in a stylistic way where it's just, you know, to be clickbait, to, to get fans to just open up a story that they're going to be disappointed by just because we put a headline on it to get people to, to lure them in. And so I don't like uh, clickbaiting at all. As a reporter, one of the main goals is to remain credible as long as possible. How long did it take you to get to that level? Um, A while. I mean, I, I almost feel like it happened toward the end of my tenure in, in, in the Sun Sentinel. I think you do have to be covering this league a long time to be able to just naturally develop sources and develop relationships. Uh, and usually when a, when a person is traded from a team or, um, or fired from a team and they move on to another team, you know, you're usually going to have a really good relationship with that player. I've covered, I mean, you know, there are guys in this league that I've covered years ago i mean you know that i um i'm still really really tight with today i was joking with somebody recently that joking with them recently is that just what are the chances but like about three four weeks ago within 10 minutes of each other out of the blue um two guys texted me that happened to be traded for each other in 1998 for the team that i was covering like here we are 22 years later and the two people just happened to text me to check in on me and these are players on a team. And just, I mean, I think that says it all, is that you need to have that type of relationship. With the NHL reporting zero phase four COVID-19 tests, how has that reassured you that this whole bubble thing will work? I think it's going to work. I think that, I mean, I've done so many stories on COVID-19 that I feel like I know everything about COVID-19. And the one thing I know is that it takes about three to five days from the point of you being exposed to the virus to testing positive. So the fact that these players have been in the bubble now for six days and there have been zero positive tests, I think it'd be absolutely almost impossible for COVID to now infiltrate this bubble as long as the bubble is tight. And that means most likely the people that are going to really need to be safe are the workers, some of the people that maybe are able to kind of escape the bubble at times, um, which the NHL is trying to uh, not allow that to happen. A lot of players, or one in specific, uh, Kazmir Kaskasua of the Toronto Maple Leafs, is documenting life in the bubble. Uh, you know, how do you like that idea being documented by players? I love it. I'm doing a diary every other day with Marcus Foligno. Um, they've been some of the most enjoyable uh, uh, stories that I've written the last three days. I'm sort of ghostwriting for him. Uh, basically, he'll call me up. We talk for about 20 minutes, and then I write it up um, in his own words. And um, he's also sending me pictures and videos and um, and really painting a great picture and giving athletic readers that are wild diehards a real good sense of what it's like to be in the bubble. At the start of June, when Gary Bevin made his whole return to play announcement, what were you thinking? Um, I wasn't positive it was going to happen because I felt uh, for what we just talked about by allowing these players to essentially do what they wanted to do for phase two and three and go out into society and public, that it was just natural that they're going to be positive tests. But a man, do I give these players and, and staff that are all in these traveling parties tremendous credit that they uh, seem to, especially that last week, go to the rink, go home, go to the rink, go home, go to the rink, go home. And I think that kept everybody safe because the key was getting to that bubble healthy. Um, because again, because of that three to five day rule, 
you could conceivably like say all these guys flew there on Sunday. If they all went out Saturday, were exposed to the virus, it would take four days for people to even know if they were positive. And by that point, you've now spread it across the bubble. So the fact that these players have zero positive tests, I think that says uh, a lot about their respect level, maturity, and the fact that they want to make sure that this season is completed. Well, another thing that's just insane is that how the MLS and NBA both have reported either zero or low COVID-19 tests, uh, positive tests, especially being in Orlando. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it says everything again about the bubble and why baseball was just, this is insane how they tried to get this to happen. Um, you just can't. And it makes me think about how, like, you know, next, even next season, the start of next season, are they going to have to start next season in maybe four different bubbles? Uh, I mean, I just can't see that by December 1, which is the tentative start date for, for the 2021 season, that, that we're all going to be allowed to just get on airplanes again, uh, go into any arena again, that fans will be in the crowd again. Um, so I think it just shows you that even down in, Orla in Orlando, which is right now ground zero you know, for COVID in this country, um, the fact that Florida, um, that, that despite what's going on outside and no, for, despite what's going on down the block, it's not getting into the bubble. This year's playoffs, the Minnesota Wild have escaped some of the top central teams. We're talking about Colorado, St. Louis, Winnipeg. How big of an opportunity is it for the Wild to prove themselves against Vancouver? Uh, I think it's huge. Um, I think they match up well. Um, you know, the big thing is, like, you know, the way I look at it is the Wild have lost 16 in the last 20 playoff games. And that's in the sort of Koivu Suter Parisi era. And these guys are now, you know, Miko's in the last year of his contract. This could be it for him in the National Hockey League. Uh, Parisi's 36, uh, Suter's 35. They've got to win at some point here because these careers are not infinite. And even though the, you know, they have, you know, term left on their deal, Suter and Parisi, they are itching to get to the Stanley Cup. So now, I mean, to me, they've got a great matchup in Vancouver to try to get back into that, quote, first round. And um, we'll see what happens here. But I think this is a, just an absolute huge um, opportunity for them to, uh, to, to really uh, get themselves into this tournament of 16 and try to make some noise in a very unprecedented postseason where anything can happen. How big has been the emergence of Kevin Fiala to the team? Uh, it's just been unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know, and I give Paul Fenton credit. He, he identified Fiala as the guy that he wanted for Grandland, and he went and got him. And, uh, and he told us all that this was going to be the player that he was going to become. And again, we've only seen it. He had a really good overall year, but really where he became an absolute star was the last five weeks of the season before the suspension of the season. And um, now the, now can you be the guy every day in the playoffs? And then can you turn it into a consistent 82 game season? I mean, that is what the true stars do in the National Hockey League. Sidney Crosby, Alex Ovechkin, Connor McDavid, uh, Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews, uh, Patrick Kane, um, you know, we, McKinnon, Rantanen, Landeskog, these are not five-week players. These are 82-game players, and that's going to be the next step that we're going to have to see if, if Fiala can evolve into. He seems to certainly want to. He seems to have the talent to do that. Um, and that, I think, is what's so exciting for Wild fans is that every day we're watching a guy on the ice where every single shift you look at him and you can see that he wants to be the best player on the ice that shift. Who is one prospect in the Minnesota Wild organization that should get fans hyped? 
Well, Kirill Kaprizov, uh, he's going to get actually, uh, he can't play in this tournament, but uh, tomorrow on Monday, he's going to have a meeting with his con with the consulate in Moscow. And then if that's approved and he gets his uh, P1 U.S. work visa, he actually could potentially be on a plane by Tuesday. Um, but he's he's just been an absolute star, what led the KHL twice in goal scoring, uh, won a championship in the KHL, scored the Olympic uh, golden goal in uh, 2018 in in, in, um, in uh Yep, there you go. Um, and so, you know, that's that's the deal now is can uh, he come here, step foot into the NHL and be a Calder Trophy candidate right away and be the star that this team hopes that he is here that we've seen uh, from YouTube videos and on Twitter highlights. How honorable is it for your work to be recognized uh, and for you to be named the Minnesota Sports Writer of the Year four times? Uh, it's really humbling, especially because, you know, stuff like that um, is is – you know, that's colleagues voting for you, right? Um, it's not fans. Um, it's it's colleagues of mine. So uh, it really is humbling. Uh, this year, I actually shared it with uh, Lavelle and Neil III, who's uh, the baseball writer at the Star Tribune, who's a really, really good friend of mine. Um, and that's probably my biggest regret of the pandemic is that he and I didn't get to go down to North Carolina to the award ceremony and, uh, you know, share a cigar and have a glass of scotch and uh, all that type of stuff that uh, Lavelle and I do when we usually hang out as buddies. Did you ever think about the award during the season? Uh, no, no. That, that stuff is just – it comes to you. It's like anything. It's just – it's humbling. Um, it means a lot, you know, obviously, um, you know, just from a self-pride standpoint. Sometimes it, what it does is just kind of reaffirm, all right, I'm doing an okay job, um, you know, because like any job, as much as you love your job, there are days that you wake up and you're not nearly as confident. You think, all right, I'm fooling everybody. I'm not nearly as good. Or, or sometimes you need that jolt of, uh, you know, of um, – of praise to make you do this job, um, you know, better and harder than you might have would have done it that day because you're just exhausted, especially at midseason when we find out if you win this award. So um, every single time, Dave Gorin is the one that runs the national, the NSMA. And every time that phone rings and it's him and it's January, you know, you just kind of get excited. You're like, wow, this is pretty neat. I, I remember um, I won the, uh, this is now it's, now you're getting me talking like pompous here, but um, I won the, the first ever Red Fisher award which um, you probably know well, Red Fisher being a Montreal Canadiens fan, he's a legend. And um, same type of thing. I get this phone call. They had never done this award before. I didn't even know the award was going to exist. Um, the Professional Hockey Writers Association, all, everybody voted, um, and, um, and I got it. I think it was a narrow, narrow win over um, uh, Aaron Portsline and Larry Brooks, if I remember correctly. And, um, but I remember Glenn Sader was the one that informed me that I won the award and it was the same type of thing. It's just like, wow, this, this is amazing. Here's a guy that I looked up to when I was in the business as a young, young sports writer. Um, every time you go into the Bell Center and be in the rafters and, and Red Fisher came up to you, you just felt like you're talking to, a G, to the God of, of hockey writing in Canada. And, um, so, you know, when, when stuff like that happens, it is humbling because this is, trust me, this is not a job that you do to try to win awards. Last question here on the podcast. Do you have any advice for aspiring sports journalists? I think just try your best to get your foot in the door. Um, I think what you're doing, Michael, is incredible. I mean, obviously you're very, very good at it. You, this has uh, been a well-run interview, one of the better ones that I've done in weeks. Um, and, uh, but I think it's important. I think you, you want to try to uh, network and, and talk to people that do this job that, uh, and try to 
talk to people that are in the shoes that eventually you want to get to because it is it's a cutthroat job the media business is shrinking it's it's hard to get your foot in the door so i always tell people to try to um you know try to master everything right do podcasts try to um, you know get comfortable in front of a camera in front of a microphone because that's the other thing in this job is that you can't just do one thing anymore you've got to be a multimedia um, you have to be able to do uh, all sorts of multimedia stuff so um, but uh, if you can get yourself into a newspaper or into a, a PR department or something to just get in there then it's up to you once your foot's in it's up to you to make it work and that's what happened to me at the Sun Sentinel is I got my foot in the door and then it's just a matter of working your absolute butt off and volunteering to do anything um, and and also be patient you know nobody could just become very few people can just all of a sudden wind up on a major radio station or a TV station or go right for the athletic or a major newspaper daily and cover the Montreal Canadiens it takes a while you got to be willing to kind of grind it out and and those times where you get disappointed, just keep on going forward. And that, that would be my biggest advice to any uh, young aspiring journalist. I'd like to thank Michael Russo, who covers the Minnesota Wild for The Athletic. Thank you again, Michael. Yep, anytime, Michael.